This sermon was recorded at the Johnson County Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Scripture reading for this morning is Matthew 5, verses 7 through 12. It can be found on page 809 in the Black Hardback Bibles. Matthew 5, starting in verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Good morning, everybody. My name is Mark, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it's really good to see everyone this morning. I'm going to uh, pray, and then I'm going to get rolling, so would you all pray with me? Father, we open your word again this morning because there's no place else to go. Would you give us hearts that sit underneath your word with humility? Would you give us hearts that sit underneath your word gladly? Would you fill your people with faith this morning? That we would hear in faith Listen and apply and understand our lives through faith. Would you convict us and comfort us, strengthen us, reveal yourself to us? We just want to see you. We just want to see you more clearly. So would you do that this morning, we ask, in the name of Jesus. Amen. In the life of in life and in, the, in, in, this, uh, in this church, there's a way of behaving that looks like keeping with religious rules that one can perform without authentically being a Christian. But you can't be a believer, you can't be a Christian without having any fruit in your life. In Christianity, the indicative precedes the imperative. And what I mean by that is your state precedes your action. Your state, your forgiveness and identity in Christ that is held firmly for you is there before you do a single thing. I want us to think this morning as we begin this sermon, I want us to think about the repentant thief on the cross. So I'm going to do something crazy this morning. I'm going to turn to Luke chapter 23, and I'm not even going to tell you what page that's on. (laughs) So start flipping towards the last fourth of the Bible. If you get to Matthew and Mark, you haven't gone far enough. And if you get to Acts and Romans, you've gone too far. Luke, Luke chapter 23. 
I'm going to begin reading in verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and save us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now then, this criminal, we have no reason to believe that he'd lived any other kind of life than a life of sin. And in this passage, he says, we're getting what we deserve, but this man doesn't deserve any of this. It isn't right. And this criminal is converted. With eyes of faith, he asks Jesus, remember me. And Jesus, seeing this man's heart, assures him, today you'll be with me. See, the new birth, the awakening of the soul, the person who has experienced regeneration, especially as an adult, like this thief, knows that something changes instantly. You're born again. You see things differently. You love things differently. You see God for who he is, and you see yourself for who you are, and nothing stays the same after that. Something about your very being is different. You're forever changed. And Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, is explaining what possessing authentic kingdom life inside you will look like. He isn't giving you a program of tactics to trick your wife into believing that you've changed. He isn't giving you strategies to fool all your friends. You can't fake the Sermon on the Mount. You can't pretend to be in the kingdom of God. Jesus condemns the Pharisees for being whitewashed tombs with rotting flesh on the inside. Jesus indicts the Pharisees for only caring about what's on the outside of a cup, all the while the inside of the cup is full of trash. One thief scorned and mocked Jesus. He even says, I don't really care if you're God, but if you are God, get me off this cross. And the other says, we deserve this. And today, I want us to hear, blessed is the poor in spirit, because Jesus looks at that man and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Blessed are they that mourn, because there's comfort for their souls. Blessed are the meek, because they're going to inherit the earth. Understand, those who truly know all the way down to the bottom that they don't deserve anything, those are the people who have everything. They inherit the world now and in the age to come. How many people in this room this morning are astounded every day at how rich you are? And I don't mean money. How many of you right now look at your wife or look at your husband and are convicted in your soul about how good God has been to you? 
How many of you look at your children and weep because of how God has blessed you? How many of you look at what you have and then look at your sin and are just overcome with all the ways that God has lavished grace after grace after grace upon you in your life? Allow me this morning to love you enough to point out the people that are sitting next to you. Look at the church family that God's given us. Allow me to love you this morning by reminding my brothers and sisters in this room that we are filthy rich. It's astounding, and I don't mean your dollars. I mean, look at the grace of God in this place. Look at his mercy. Look at how he loves us. Look at this building. This stuff isn't ours. Nothing that we have is ours, and yet God allows us to have it. In fact, he enjoys giving it to us. It's God's, and yet he allows us to have it. Look at the body of Christ. Look at this church. We're filthy rich. And if you know that, if you truly know what God has done for you, then you know that you don't deserve anything, and that is the person that has everything, that's inherited the earth. And I want that for you. I want that for us. I want that for this place and our church. I want our hearts to have the chains that we have that are attached to our stuff to be broken. I want real freedom for you. I want real, true flourishing and happiness. And that's what Jesus offers in this text. John Stott says in his commentary about the Beatitudes, the eight qualities together constitute the responsibilities and the eight blessings and privileges constitute what, what being a citizen in the kingdom of God looks like. This is what enjoyment of God's rule means. Are these blessings present or future? Personally, I think the only possible answer is both. Both. And before we move further, I want to fill in some more understanding before we leave the Beatitudes behind and move on to the next text uh, next week. The verb form of blessing someone and the noun for existing in a state of blessedness in some ways in English sound very much alike, okay? But the verb for divine blessing and the noun for this type of blessedness in the Old Testament and brought into the New Testament are different words. In the Hebrew Bible and in their New Testament equivalents, these are different words. There's a specific Hebrew word group that's used, for instance, when God calls Abraham and tells him that he will bless him and his descendants that keep covenant with God. This word group, according to one scholar, quote, is spread throughout the Old Testament, but is highly concentrated in the Pentateuch and the Psalms. In passages that deal with the patriarchs, the divine blessings and curses on nations, the covenants, the worship of the Lord. By means of this word, God actively gives and enables his word to go forth, resulting in benefits such as fertility, authority, peace, and rest. End quote. And there's another word group used in other places in the Bible, places like Isaiah 30, 18, which says, therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. 
And Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. You see, when God administers a blessing to someone in the Old Testament, that person is in a state of blessedness, but those two words in the Old Testament are not synonymous. They're not the same word. When God acts, When he administers blessing to someone, that is a certain word group. And then speaking of somebody that's in a state of blessedness, like Psalm 1 or Isaiah 30, that's a different word. The New Testament word in these Beatitudes is that second kind of example. It's the word group in Hebrew used when God, it's not the the word group that that the Hebrew Bible uses for blessings or curses, It's the word in Hebrew to speak about a blessed state or a flourishing state. So with that understanding, I touched on that a little bit last week, but I wanted to give it even more kind of boundaries and specific framework. And because we know, because we know this, I want to call us this morning and kind of like frame the rest of the sermon this morning around a call to this flourishing life, to this blessed life, to the good life. With that understanding, I want us to get ready for the promises of a blessed life in the kingdom of God today by calling us to mercy, by calling us to be pure of heart, by calling us to be peacemaking people, and calling us to righteousness. And then, and first, I'm going to make one more technical observation before we, before we move forward. The first and the eighth beatitude are bookends of the beatitudes. They occur in verse 3, and they occur in verse 10. In verse 3, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then again in verse 10, it says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those two synonymous kind of endings make the bookends for the Beatitudes. And verse 11 is an application or an expansion of verse 10. So flourishing in the kingdom looks like this. It looks like these verses. This is the only way to a life of flourishing. It's the only way to the good life, the life of satisfaction and true happiness. And so I want to start today by calling us to be merciful. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And I want to move forward here by asking a really sophisticated question and say, so what? Who cares? Why should I care about obtaining mercy? Why should I care about being merciful? And in order to get at this, I'm going to read a parable from Matthew 18 to help us understand. I'm going to, I'm going to read Matthew 18, 21, the parable about the wicked servant. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Hey, that is way too much money for this guy to pay off. And since he could not pay, 
His master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you back everything. And out of pity, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that very same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, saying, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported it to their master. They reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailer until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And so I ask, now do you understand why I'm asking who cares? Who cares? This guy in this parable didn't care about receiving mercy. I know that there are people in this room who don't care either, who don't care about their sin or who don't think it's a big deal or don't believe that they need forgiveness or mercy. But you see, he that has no spiritual debt doesn't feel the weight of this parable. And if you're here today and you don't think that you need mercy, then you're in a bad spot, my friend. This parable is told to us because this is how we act. This is how we behave. We demand accountability for everybody else and then we want mercy for ourselves. And think for a second about all the mercy in your life. Think about all the places that blessings and kindnesses from God are in your life. God has us under an absolute torrent of his mercy all the time. And yet we choke out our brothers and sisters and demand that they give us what they owe us. Do you know this morning that you need mercy? I don't so much want to get academic or explain to you what's going on in this statement from Jesus as much as I have been begging the Spirit of God to help everyone in this room understand that they need God's mercy. You need it. You need it. Once we were dead in our trespasses and sins, once we loved darkness rather than light because our deeds were evil, once we were hostile in mind and at enmity with God, once we were enemies of God, and even though we are believers now, some of us, we still undervalue God's glory. We trade him for football and sex and food. We neglect our Christian duties. We forget God's statutes. The list goes on and on and on. And I want this to sink down. Not because I want you to do all the right things. It's because I want you to get how mercy works. You got to feel it all the way to the bottom before you're able to give it to somebody else. So I got to ask today, do you know your, your sin? Do you see the sin still in your heart 
still in your life, how it affects your friends or your wife or hurts your kids, how it assaults the glory of God and the beauty of God. And do you hate it this morning? Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he's good. His mercy endures forever. A person who knows and loves the mercy of God will live a flourishing life, a blessed life. God's merciful to all the godless and wicked and God-hating people in the world every single time they take a breath, but they don't care. That mercy doesn't matter to them. They don't love it because they don't think they need it. That's what I want for you. And that's why I'm saying that we need God's astounding and beautiful and unimaginable mercy, the kind of mercy that died, that was tortured for your sin and my sin. We don't get that kind of mercy if we don't understand our sin. Next, I want to call us to have a pure, undivided heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let me first ma- mention uh, Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, when you cleanse the outside of the cup and plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first cleanse the inside of the cup and of the plate, and the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you are outwardly, outwardly you appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You see, see the heart of a person, the heart is who we really are. That's not very, that's like unsophisticated, low-hanging fruit, easy to grasp. When you wonder what the heart is talking about in the Bible, it's talking about who you really are. That's why we say things like the heart of the matter. It's the important part, right? Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And it's what comes out of a man that defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. Jesus says what makes you unclean are these kinds of things. Your heart is who you really are, whether or not anyone is around to see it. Here Jesus even says evil thinking comes out of our heart. So it's deeper than what we're always aware of or always conscious of. The prophet Jeremiah reminds us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So how could we hope to be pure in heart if we ever want to see God, if we ever want to behold a vision of God? Because that's what I want for us which means I want you to be pure in heart. Let me read a close Old Testament parallel to this beatitude from Psalm 24. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Many scholars name the reality that impurity of heart is naming a divided kind of allegiance. Purity of heart is singleness. 
in our love and devotion to God. Impurity of heart is deception and lies and guile. James says it like this in James 4. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you men of double mind. The struggle and the fight for purity of heart is the fight to obey the great commandment, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your soul and all of your strength. The struggle for purity of heart is about the allegiance of your heart and less about keeping up appearances. Is your heart single in its devotion, single in its aim, congruent from the inside to the outside? And when we struggle with our sin, do we cry with the Apostle Paul, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Is your heart divided this morning? Is your affection and love for God cold? Or is it contaminated? with love for your career or your influence or your popularity? Is your heart's affection for God competing with the love that you have for your children? If that's the case, we're not lost. We can repent, cleanse our hands, purify our hearts and set our hearts on the Lord. Repent of envy or jealousy or pride of any sin Because like the writer of Hebrews says, to strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The heart that's single in its devotion to God repents of its idolatry, repents of its besetting sin, repents of sinful actions and attitudes and longings. The pure in heart care about holiness and desire to see their flesh crucified completely. That's the person that'll see God. You don't have to be perfect to see God. Only Christ could achieve that. But are you longing to see the sin in your life exposed and crucified? That's the person that'll see God. Next, I want to call us to be peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And I want this for you. I want this for our church, which means I want you to care about being a peacemaking person. Peacemakers are free people because they aren't tangled up in strife or envy or quarrels or discord. Peacemakers aren't necessarily happy-go-lucky people. A peacemaker is not a person who wants peace at any price. A peacemaker is not necessarily an easygoing person. Being a peacemaker doesn't mean that you avoid conflict or pretend to be at peace with people. True peacemakers don't avoid trouble and they don't avoid problems, but instead seek to bring truth and peace to whatever situation they encounter. God says through the prophet Jeremiah, they have healed the wound of my people too lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. To operate that way, God here uh, condemns, condemns that way of operating in the world. The peacemaker doesn't settle for for sweeping something under the rug when love requires that it be addressed but they also don't go looking for unnecessary trouble, right? That means both choosing to not sow discord and actively sowing peace instead. 
A peacemaker enjoys the freedom of being a merciful person. A peacemaker enjoys the freedom of being pure in heart. How many of you, when you're taken over by envy or jealousy or bitterness, experience irritation or frustration because it bothers you that it bothers you? That's slavery. That's not freedom. A peacemaker will be a person who's very familiar with the ways that God has shown him mercy. Much like meekness, they may fight for justice, but never for revenge. They may work for conflict to be resolved, but never merely to win an argument. They may fight for reconciliation, but always for the glory of God and not just to look good to other people. Peacemakers know how not to talk, right? They understand that knowing when to stop talking is many, is many times more important than saying just the right thing. They know that being quick to listen and slow to speak, slow to get angry, sows peace. And that's liberating for them. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And anger functions like shackles on your soul. We explode and say things that we shouldn't, or we process things with justificate with, we process things with others that should only be processed with God in our prayer time. We do things like vent, like there's a biblical justification for it, but there isn't. We sow discord by sharing things that we shouldn't say, or even listening to things that we shouldn't listen to. We dishonor, we disrespect, we speak dismissively of others in the name of processing, but the peacemaker doesn't need to process because they're free from thinking about themselves at all. Much like meekness, the peacemaking person is very much over themselves. Listen to how this pastor says it. The peacemaker is one who is not always looking at everything in terms of the effect it has upon himself. Now, is that not the whole trouble with us by nature? We look at everything as it affects us. What is the reaction upon me? What is this going to mean to me? And the moment we think like that, there is of necessity war because it just so happens that everybody else is thinking the exact same way. He goes on, how's this going to affect me? What's this doing to me? That's the spirit that leads to quarrels and arguments and misunderstandings and disputes. The peacemaker has seen himself and has come to see that in a sense, this miserable, wretched self is not worth bothering about at all. It's so wretched, it has no rights or privileges. It does not deserve anything. The whole of these beatitudes strings together in this kind of logical sequence. It's the poor in spirit who are peacemakers. It's the person who has mourned rightly over their own sin who can be a peacemaker. It's the person who's mourned over their sin who's humble enough to make peace. It's the people who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness who can let go of retaliation or slander or bitterness or resentment or quarreling. It's the hungry and the desperate who possess the humility needed to make peace. 
And then lastly, I want to call us to righteousness. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That hardly sounds like a blessed life. Blessed are the people who do the right thing because they're going to be persecuted. That hardly sounds like the good life. That hardly sounds like something worthy of rejoicing about. And this, this beatitude is expanded in verses 11 and 12 when it says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And the Gospel of Luke brings even starker kind of clarity here when Jesus says, Hey, Everybody in the Old Testament liked the false prophets. Everybody liked them. They were the most popular people. They were the most famous. Everybody was into what they were saying. But woe to you when everybody likes you. When righteousness costs you, when you're reviled and slandered and falsely accused, Jesus says it's in that day that you are blessed. Notice it isn't speaking of every kind of suffering that the Christian endures. There is suffering in this world that comes from foolishness, and that's not an example of what Jesus is talking about right here. There's suffering that Christians endure because of folly or even just the consequences of their sin, and that is not the suffering that Jesus is talking about right here. If you're suffering because you're being just difficult or cranky or obtuse, that's not persecution. If you're suffering because of selfishness or sin, that isn't persecution. One author says, we're slow to realize the difference between prejudice and principle. And we are slow to understand the difference between being offensive in a natural sense because of our particular makeup and temperament and causing offense because we are being righteous, end quote. Persecution is not when the friends hold up the mirror and tell you that you're acting like a child or you're acting like a buffoon. That's your friends being loving to you if they do it in the right way. It isn't persecution. This isn't talking about suffering for a cause or a principle, which are good things to do in their own right. But that isn't what Jesus is saying. There are a million reasons that Christians suffer, many of which we bring upon ourselves by acting arrogantly or foolishly or hastily. And those sufferings aren't persecution. Jesus isn't talking about those. God will use those to discipline us. He'll use those to transform us, but that's not persecution for the sake of Christ. It's easy for us to treat all Christian suffering as persecution, but that's not the case. However, if you're here this morning and you're doing your best, excuse me, and you're doing your best to act like Jesus, to see him living through you, and you're suffering because of that, that's persecution. And Jesus wants you to know that there is a day when you will get a reward for that. Jesus suffered. Jesus suffered by being righteous. And right here when it says, 
when you suffer for righteousness sake, the only one that was ever righteous was Christ. It's suffering for being like Jesus. And Jesus suffered because the world only has two reactions to his righteousness. It condemns them. Either we are exposed by it and we repent and we see Jesus for who he is and we love him and worship him, worship him, or we hate him and want nothing to do with him. No one actually thinks that Jesus is merely only a good moral teacher. No one really does. If that's what they're saying, it's just because they don't see who he truly is fully, who he claimed to be. They think that the Jesus in their head was a great moral teacher, but that isn't the Jesus of the Bible. You can't take one part of him without taking all of him. This is why the world will hate us the same way it hated Jesus and tortured and crucified him. If we look like Jesus, we will be persecuted. There's no question in John 15. Uh, Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world and I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. We tend, we tend to get it backward and think the more we act like Jesus, the more our neighbors will be inclined to like us. We think that the more we act like Jesus, the more our coworkers will like us and our unbelieving family will like us. But that's not what this text says. And I only want to take a, take a moment this morning to, uh, to offer to us a chance for reflection on this text. Those family members don't like Jesus much right now, so why would they like it when we act like him or when we remind them of Jesus? Perhaps, perhaps we're living in such a way that we aren't reminding anybody of Jesus and we aren't suffering any any persecution because of that. Now listen, I want to be really tentative and careful and humble here and say I don't presume to know what's going on in any of your guys' hearts or in any of your lives. I don't presume to know the answer to any of those questions. Only you and the Holy Spirit know the answer. But I do want to be super, super honest with you all and say that as I read this text this week, I was convicted with self-reflection, thinking about how I frame up, how I live in the world. I'm asking myself the question in real time about my life. Are there places in my life that I'm really just compromising or being a coward and not being like Jesus at all? In the place that Jesus loved others enough to bear the torture of being righteous in their presence. Jesus loved others so much. He loved them enough even to be hated by them for the sake of righteousness. And that's convicting, that's convicting to me as I studied this text this week. And so I just want to offer it to us by way of reflection 
This passage today calls us to learn mercy. It calls us to have clean and undivided hearts. It calls us to be courageous enough to make peace. And it calls us to love the righteousness of Christ more than just getting along with people. But no matter who you are and what you think about the Sermon on the Mount, if you're a Christian, then you know that you fall far shorter from the description here in the Beatitudes than you'd like to. Than you'd like to. But Christians don't wallow in failure. We don't wallow in our stumbling and our struggling. We repent and dust ourselves off as we look to Jesus and keep marching forward. The truth is, is the only person who could achieve what's described here in the Sermon on the Mount is Christ himself. The truth is, is only Jesus could live a perfect life that honored and kept the whole and entire law of God. So as we see what he's offering us in the Sermon on the Mount and we are convicted in our core, like receive that as a gift from the Holy Spirit, not as condemnation, not as shame. There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, right? Your state has been achieved, so now live like what's been done for you has been done for you. And that's why we end every single service by eating Jesus' flesh and drinking his blood to remind us that Jesus lived and died and rose again because if you're trying to keep track of how you measure up to the Sermon on the Mount, let me, let me uh, uh, spoil it for you. You're not going to make it. You can't do it. You will fail. And that's the point. That's the point. The point is to look to Jesus. You can't be merciful unless you know what kind of mercy you've been given. And that will reorient you towards every single person in your life. This is why we take communion every single week. And the way we do it here is we, 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 we tear a piece of bread off and we dip it into a cup. The stoneware cup is wine and the glassware cup is juice. The glassware cup. The glassware is juice. There will be two stations right in front of me and one in the balcony. And then further over to the left, there will be a gluten-free station, which is also single serve. And then over here underneath this stained glass window, we will have prayer ministers who would love to pray for anybody, for anything, anytime. So if you are here this morning and you name the name of Christ, if you trust Jesus for your righteousness, then we invite you to come and take communion. And if you don't, we ask you not to. We ask you to maybe pray, pray or reflect, consider, ask Jesus to reveal himself to you or ask one of us, um, myself or anybody else on staff to maybe pray with you or discuss it with you. Uh, right now, I'm going to pray and thank Jesus for his body and his blood and the ministers, the prayer ministers will come forward, the, the, uh, the worship team and, uh, and the, communion, uh, the communion servers. So would you all pray with me? Jesus, thank you for your body, which was broken for us. Jesus, thank you for your blood that you spilled to seal the new covenant. Thank you that it's all about grace. Thank you that we are saved by grace through and through all the way to the bottom. 
Thank you that faith is a gift. I ask that you would give the gift of faith to people in this room right now. And I ask for people who already name the name of Christ, that you would deepen their faith, strengthen their faith, even as they walk forward to eat in faith. I ask that they would proclaim your death until you come again. And I ask that that would form them deeply in their souls. We thank you. We worship you. We trust you. We love you. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray all these things. Amen. Come up when you're ready.